Most of you are aware that we are presently entering into a study of the 12 prophets in the Old Testament, or as we often call them, the minor prophets. And today uh, we looked at Hosea, the first in line of that. If you were in class, you looked at the first part of Hosea, and oftentimes we kind of stop with that and, and uh, forget about the last part that teaches much the same lesson but in a different way. So if you'll be standing, please, we're going to read from Hosea chapter 11. Verses 1 through 9. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more I called them, the more they went from me. They kept sacrificing to the bells and offering incense to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my arms But they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with bands of love. I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them and fed them. Oh, they shall return to the land of Egypt. Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. The sword rages in their cities, it consumes their oracle priests, and devours because of their schemes. My people are bent on turning away from me. To the Most High, and that's not God, that's a pagan God. To the Most High they call, but He does not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and no mortal, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not Come in wrath. May God bless the reading of his word. Well, you guys are going to be glad you came today because we don't just have one sermon, we have two today. Aren't you thrilled? I know you're already looking and saying, hey, we're running a little behind as it is, and now Tommy's going to preach two sermons. Well, I'm still going to do it, but we'll do it as quickly as we can. As I mentioned, uh, if you were in class today, you studied Hosea, and I think you spent most of your time primarily there at the first part of Hosea, where a very beautiful and very moving image, where God presents himself as a faithful husband and presents Israel as the unfaithful wife, and how God continually pursues his unfaithful wife and wins her back and restores her, only to have her run off again. Well, that is a very informative and very moving image. But as we go into Hosea further, we find out that God describes the same principle, but in a little different way. Here in chapter 11, the image is not husband and wife, but parent and child. And and one of the amazing things to me as I read this is how over a period of about 27 some odd hundred years, things really haven't changed that much. Parents still love their children, 
and especially when they're little, just dote on them and the things they do for them and the joy they find from them. If you have your Bibles open, look back at verses 3 and 4 of chapter 11 of Hosea, where God is thinking back to the very childhood of the nation of Israel. And he says, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Ephraim is another name for Israel. And that just conjures up all kinds of memories for me. We had three sons, and some of my favorite times is when I walked like this with them. Remember that? You bend over, and they're like this, and you're going along like that, and you're getting them to take one step. Sometimes they'd put their feet on my feet, and we would walk along and teach them. And then I'd get brave enough to let them go. And my kids are all must be really very intelligent because they were top-heavy. You know, their heads or, or huge, and as soon as you let them go, it's like wonk, <laughs> and I had all these bruises. I, I knew that CPS was going to come visit me sooner or later, but just remember those wonderful times, and taking them up in their arms, your arms, and just cuddling them. I took them in my arms, and then when they're sick, oh, your heart aches, and you do everything that you can to bring health back to them and to heal them. He says, I led them with cords of human kindness, with bands of love. And one of my favorite phrases, isn't this just beautiful? He said, I was like one of those who lifts an infant to his cheeks. That's how much God loved his child Israel. You you see him sitting there nuzzling that cute little face with his cheek. And I bent down to feed them. This is God speaking. And God humbled himself, and you can see the image of him bending over and just one spoon at a time feeding the child. That a beautiful picture of parenthood, of the joys of parenthood, and how much love God had for his child, Israel. However, those cute little babies grow up. And as happens so often, rebellion enters into the picture. Parents, I saw some of you kind of grimace, okay? You know what I'm talking about. Adolescent years, we, as I said, we had three boys, which meant we, one time in our life over a period of time, we went through sixth grade with three different boys, so uh, if you want to send Pat a sympathy card, you know, she, she is still accepting sympathy over those difficult years. Well, obviously, God is going through difficult times with his child as well. See if any of these phrases kind of resonate with you. It says, the more I called out to them, the more they ran away from me. Been there? Done that? Or verse 7. My people seem bent on turning away from me. They're looking to others, to the Most High for their authority. You know, parents sometimes go through a life phase where they know nothing. (laughs) That the kids, if they want to know something, there's lots of other sources to go to, but not mom and dad. Well, here is God finding himself in that same position. After all I've done for them, who is it that they're running to? They're running to the bells. They're running to this most high God, whoever he might be. But he has not been able 
to help them at all. And God agonizes over the consequences of these behaviors. Just like parents know that some of the behaviors they recognize in children are dangerous behaviors and can have lasting effects for their lives, setting the course of their lives. God is agonizing over his child Israel. He says they're going to end up back in Egypt. They're going to end up with Assyria being their king because they won't come and ask me. They won't have anything to do with me. They're going to these other places, and things are not going to turn out well at all. So what does a parent do in that situation? What's the right answer if you end up with a rebellious child or rebellious children like God has ended up with his rebellious Israel? What's a parent to do? All right, that was lesson one, okay? We're going to put that on hold just for a minute, and we're going to run over and do sermon two real fast, and I'll run through this because what I want us to do is look very quickly at family systems, all right? Now, I know you may think you're in psychology class or something, but but I think this is helpful to try to help us understand how our families work and how our families address crises whenever crises arise, as they certainly will. This is a a little um, chart that was done by Dr. Donald Joy, and I've always found it very helpful. Like most charts, it's structured on uh, two different poles, which creates then four quadrants. Uh, If you've ever taken a psych class, you love quadrants, counseling classes, everything's quadrants. The first uh, 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 poll that we have here is the value of the person. In your family, how high is that value? How much is the worth of every person? If you have a high respect for the value of each person in the family, then they are respected, they are loved, they are defended, they are protected. It's shown in the camaraderie of the family, how the family really hangs together, how the family affirms each other, and how people in the family celebrate success for any family member. Conflict resolution is very quick because the focus is not on the person that's causing problems. The focus is on the issue that is the problem. They're able to separate person from issue and address issues. Now, if it's very low, the value of the person is very low, then this is a family that is dominated by self-interest, and it's shown primarily in sarcasm, ridicule, demeaning remarks to one another. Think sitcoms, okay? Years ago, Pat and I quit watching sitcoms about families because not so much the language and not so much the, the, the values of the people, the morale, but it was because of the way they talked to each other. We just got tired of hearing families talk back to each other. This kind of families use a lot of you language, you and me, all right? It's all about you did this, you did that, you are this, you are that, you make me miserable. Obviously, there's not a lot of value there within the families. All right. The other poll is the distribution of responsibility. How much responsibility do we give and how little control do we take? All right. If a family has low distribution of responsibility, that means somebody is really exerting strong control of this family. 
All right? Whereas if the distribution of responsibility is high, then decisions are made more as a group, and each person in the family, commensurate with their age level and maturity, has input into what is going on in that family because each person is valued and recognized, and there's no one person feeling like he or she has to be in control of this whole family. All right, now then, with those as the poles, let's look quickly at quadrants, all right? What happens if a family is a family that has low value of people, but they have a high concentration of power within someone in the family? Well, what you end up with is basically a competing family because everyone is competing trying to run this family. Mom and dad are competing with each other for control and for the affection of the children. And by the way, in this family thing, we're using a husband, a wife, and four children. Uh, your family structure may not look just like that, but, uh, you know, I think this works on pretty much all structures. It, it, that's just what he chose, and that's what I put in there as well. But in a family like this, it's up in the air about who's going to be running things. Mom and dad don't work together. Mom and dad work against each other because mom wants the kids basically to look to her. Dad wants the kids to look to him. Dad wants to run the wife. Wife wants to run. And there's a lot of manipulation going on in this family because the kids have very little power. So they learn to manipulate mom and dad and to get mom and dad to do what they want them to do. And the stress in these families is ridiculous because after all... Everybody is so busy all the time trying to get things to go their way and for this whole system to work for them. Now, there are a lot of different ways to control a family. You can control it with authority and an iron fist. You can control it with weakness by just falling apart all the time. You know, uh, some people control a family because they've always got a problem. And so everybody has to rush and help so-and-so in the family because this person, again, once again has fallen apart. And so now we got to go put them back together. So guess who's in charge of that family? All right. You ever work with families like that? Okay. Brian says there are families like that. Okay. All right. Second family is a chaotic family because there is still this low value of the individual. However, there's also a high distribution of responsibility in that we really don't care who's in charge of this family. It's pretty much, I take care of myself, you take care of yourself. You know, and especially as the kids get older, you know, it's just kind of like, hey, you live your life, I'll live mine. Unfortunately, husbands and wives enter into this phase along the way at times where I just go and live in my world and you live in your world. And we share the same address, you know, but... It's chaotic because I'm in charge of me, you're in charge of you. And families like this can be recognized because they rarely eat together. After all, we're all too busy. We've got, you've got your life, I've got my life. It's hard for us to schedule being together here. Uh, families like this also have no systems for getting the laundry done and the house cleaned and all of that. So usually they live in chaos as well because they haven't figured out how to work together as a family to get these daily chores done that need to be done. Basically, mom and dad have defaulted on being mom and dad, letting the kids raise themselves. All right, the fourth or third quadrant up here is called the showcase family. Now, this family is high in valuing people. There is respect for people here, 
but low in the distribution of power. Therefore, someone has finally won the battle, and he or she is in charge of this family. Okay. There are these families, and they call them showcase families because on the outside, things look really good. I mean, you've got mom or dad leading the way. Everybody knows who's in charge, so everybody toes the line. You know, you get in line and you walk along like ducks, right? And everything gets done until it crumbles. These are called showcase families because they look good, and oftentimes somewhere along the way, they just fall apart. Because the people who are the underlings can't live with the stress. It's interesting that a lot of our alcohol and drug abuse come out of showcase families. Now, some can come out of these others as well, but a lot of it comes out of families in which somebody is ruling either with an iron fist or somebody is ruling by being the person who is always uh, having the problem, or the addict himself or herself becomes the power person because they have a problem and the whole family has to always rally around them. All right? So, there you have the showcase family hurrying along. Finally, this family, the intimate family, which is obviously the model that joy and the model that, that we would know is the model in which really health is found, in which really peace and affirmation is found, where individuals are valued highly and also the power of the family is spread throughout the family because the whole family is important. It begins with mom and dad, and I'm pretty prejudicial on this because I truly believe that children find their security in life through the love of mom and dad. When mom and dad are really into each other, and the family knows it, the children know that mom and dad love each other, they're not competing with each other, they're not criticizing each other, but they really have that strong basis of love, then the children can sit and rest secured that this family is working. And the family, the children are included in the system too. And as the children grow, they are not demeaned and pushed down. They are given more and more control over their own lives. And hopefully with the model of mom and dad who are working together as a team, they realize that family is a team too. And they use their own power to contribute to the needs of the family and to the love of the family as well as to their individual needs and their love. Now, I know you're sitting there going, okay, which kind of family did I grow up in? Which kind of family did I produce? All of these can at times be functional, but the one that's the best is dominated by love and not dominated by control. Now let's go back and finish out lesson one. What's God going to do with his rebellious child, Israel? Well, it depends on what kind of family God has put together. You know, so often we kind of think of God's family as the showcase family, that he is into control. He's in charge, and we better toe the line. And yet, both through Scripture and through practical understanding in life, we really know that's not true. How many of you feel totally controlled by God and dominated by God? He's not that kind of God. He's not the kind of God who, who, who says, you have to do this. And if you don't do this, then this and this and this. And this. He does give you responsibility. Responsibility. 
He does give you accountability. But with that accountability and that responsibility, He gives you His love, His empowerment, His support. Listen to what He says in verse 9 again. He says, what I'm going to do is this. I will not execute my fierce anger. Okay, parents, those of you who have been parents recently enough to remember it, it's kind of blissfully fading away from me. (laughs) How many of you have been angry while you're parenting? Anybody? No, you don't have to raise your hand. Okay. (laughs) Some of you are quick on the confession there. Ever been angry with your children as they're growing up? Well, God, isn't 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 it really... You know, kind of reaffirming to know that God gets angry with his children too. That's a pretty natural response, that that's understandable. However, the question comes up then, what are you going to do about that anger? And God says, you know, I am not going to execute my fierce anger upon my children. He goes on to say, because I'm God, I'm not a human being. I will be the Holy One in your midst. And God prepares a way for His people to come back to Him, even though they don't deserve it. He waits for them to grow up. He helps them grow up so that they can return and they can come back and He can settle them once again. And by the way, just a quick historical note. One of the big problems that Israel had in their rebellion was that they kept going after other gods. And when this whole thing happened about the captivity and that Hosea's talking about Isaiah, all the prophets talk about God bringing them back together and putting them back on their feet and restoring them. Do you know what? It worked that not one time since that day has the nation and the people of Israel ever gone after strange gods again. It worked. God says, I didn't do it out of my anger. I did it out of my love. And for us, as God's children, when we rebelled against him, he didn't come and strike us in his anger, but he sent his son. He sent his son to love us, to show us that he truly is a loving God. He sent his son to redeem us and to restore us, but he didn't take control. And you still have within your hands, within your heart, and within your soul, the ability to say, I will believe that, and I will accept that, and I will become a part of God's healthy family. God is calling to us, waiting for us to grow up, letting us know that He loves, and calling us to be faithful, loving children. Let's stand and sing.